0: My question is, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result.
1: Hi, Carrie Lake. How's that acceptance coming? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something. Scared in case I fall off my chair, and I'm wondering how I get down the stairs.
2: Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with
1: you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's W-L-R-I Maui, Hawaii's K-A-K-U In Columbus, Ohio on W-G-R-N Palinville, New York's W-L-P-P In Rochester, New York on W-R-F-Z Down in New Orleans on W-H-I-V Out in Gallup, New Mexico on K-N-I-Z Concord, New Hampshire's W-N-H-N Fayetteville, Arkansas's K-P-S-Q In Seattle on K-O-D-X Janesville, Wisconsin's W-A-D-R-N Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Internet for your convenience. On the Progressive Voices Channel and Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us as our election day coverage continues. A full week now after <laughs> one of the most remarkable midterm election days in U.S. history, I think. You're welcome. We will be joined by one of our favorite guests momentarily. But first, hello, Desi Doyen. Hello.
0: We certainly live in interesting times. Don't
1: we, though? Uh, And I suspect this election day, by the way, is probably going to be continuing for another week or two or maybe a month. Uh, Anyway, back in late October, outgoing Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, turned on her uh, turned on by her own party for daring to describe the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021 as an insurrection. Well, she released an ad via her political action committee slamming Arizona's hard right. Trump endorsed Republican candidate for governor Carrie Lake and uh, also the state's Looney Tunes Republican secretary of state candidate Mark Fincham, both of whom, despite recount after recount after recount back in 2020, said that they would not have certified Joe Biden's 2020 presidential victory in the state had they been in office at the time. Here was Liz Cheney's 30-second ad.
0: I don't know that I have ever voted for a Democrat, but if I lived in Arizona, I absolutely would. You have a candidate for governor, Carrie Lake. You have a candidate for secretary of state, Mark Fincham, both of whom have said that they will only honor the results of an election if they agree with it. And if you care about the survival of our republic, we cannot give people power who will not honor elections. We must have elected officials who honor that
1: responsibility. So that was late October. uh, And uh, well, the very Trumpy Carrie Lake claimed to have been delighted at the time by that ad, she was thrilled by it, so thrilled, in fact, that she wrote a letter to Liz Cheney on October 28 that read... Liz Cheney, defeated member of Congress. Sick burn right there. Oh, totally. Dear Liz, thank you for your generous, in-kind contribution to my campaign. Your recent television ad urging Arizonans not to vote for me is doing just the opposite. Our Our campaign donations are skyrocketing and our website nearly crashed from traffic as people rushed to learn more about my plan to put Arizona first and join our historic political movement. In fact, she wrote, My team tells me your commercial should add another 10 points to our lead. 10 points. Wow. Uh, She said, I guess that's why they call the Cheney anti-endorsement the gift that keeps on giving. Thank you again for the huge boost to our campaign. Enjoy your forced retirement from politics. I know America will rest easier knowing that one more warmonger is out of office. Sincerely, Carrie Lake, campaign manager and Republican nominee for governor of Arizona. So I guess she's her own campaign manager. Who knows? Uh, that might explain a thing or two. Anyway, <laughs> uh, she then adds, P.S. Make Arizona great again. That same day, October 28, just uh, over a couple of weeks ago, Lake posted that letter to Liz Cheney on her Twitter account, adding the text at the top just to make sure that Cheney saw it. Quote, thank you, Liz Cheney. Well, on Monday night, about an hour or so after we got off air, the corporate media called the very close race in Arizona between Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs and former TV anchor and current Donald Trump wannabe Kerry Lake called it for the Democrat Katie Hobbs. Moments later, more than two weeks since Lake sent her snarky thank you to Cheney.
0: I would call it snotty, but yes.
1: Liz Cheney then replied to say, quote, You're welcome, Carrie Lake. Sick burn. Totally. (laughs) Uh, As we go to air today, Katie Hobbs, yes, appears to have defeated Carrie Lake for governor in Arizona for some reason, a particularly pleasing outcome. Flipping that seat held by a Republican, the governor's seat in Arizona for the past 13 years. Looks like uh, Hobbs uh, won it by 0.7%. Or about 18,000 votes out of two and a half, more than two and a half million tallied with more than 95 percent of the vote said to now be in. So as of now, that is that 0.7 percent. That's just over the 0.5 percent or less that would mandate an automatic recount in the great state of Arizona. And thanks to Arizona recount law, it looks to me like Lake will not even be able to pay for one oh, in the state. Oh, she
0: would even be able to get one by request? That
1: is what it appears to be when it comes to Arizona election law. If there's something uh, about the election law in Arizona that I don't know, well, I'll let you know. But my understanding is... If it's not 0.5 or half a half a percent or less, you don't get a recount in Arizona, which, by the way, is 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 ridiculous. It's too bad because there were some problems with uh, tabulation systems. They use paper, thankfully, hand marked paper ballots. In Arizona and some of the polling places on, a, on Election Day, some of those scanners went down. It did not keep anyone from casting a vote. They could still cast their vote, their ballot, but that ballot would be tallied later on back at county headquarters in uh, in Maricopa County rather than by the tabulator at the polling place. Nonetheless, you know, it's ridiculous in a race that close that, you know, that she can't get a recount. She should be able, at the very least, to be able to pay for a hand recount. But you know what? Republicans have been setting the election laws in Arizona for years, making it harder and harder for people to vote. And yes, apparently for candidates to ask for a recount. Um So also, it's made it harder, frankly, for Republicans to come to terms with reality, apparently. Here was Carrie Lake on Election Day speaking to journalists after casting her own vote.
0: I'm going to not only be the governor of Arizona for four years, I'm going to do two terms. I'm going to be your worst freaking nightmare for eight years, and we will reform the media as well. We're going to make you guys into journalists again. So get ready. It's going to be a fun eight years. I can't wait.
1: Yeah, we all can't wait, Carrie. By the way, she said that uh, had she been uh, uh, governor at the time back in 2020, that she would not have certified Joe Biden's election. Well, good news for her. I noted someone on Twitter had said she'll be able to uh, not certify Joe Biden again (laughs) in 2024. So, uh, Lake's loss, actually, uh, that one's actually surprised me in Arizona, I got to say. I thought she was going to win that one, in truth.
0: It was really close, obviously.
1: Yeah, it was really close. I was not surprised by much of what we saw this year, as so many apparently... In the media were, but that one actually caught even me off guard, presuming it holds up. I also uh, was pleasantly surprised that Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, the uh, Democrat in Nevada, that she won her race over Adam Laxalt. It looked like she was in real trouble as well this year, but she also won. To help ensure a Democratic majority in the Senate next year, where no Democrat has so far lost any of their uh, reelection contests. Also, for the record, in Arizona, as we noted yesterday, the other candidate named in Cheney's video, Republican Secretary of State, uh, well, candidate Mark Fincham, he lost as well to Democrat Adrian Fontes, who is excellent. So, yeah, to quote Kerry Lake... Thank you, Liz Cheney. And, of course, <laughs> our thanks, as always, to Donald Trump, since none of this would likely have been possible without you. So, to add it all up now, in Arizona, as of now, Democrats will hold both U.S. Senate seats again next year, though uh, one of them is held by Kirsten Cinnamon. and, you know, well, anyway, she's up for re-election in 2024. She'll probably face a Democratic primary challenger. The governor will be Democratic now in Arizona. The Secretary of State will be Democratic. And if her tiny current lead holds up, they'll also have a Democratic Attorney General in Arizona, Chris Mays. She may flip that Republican office to Democrat as well. The AG's race to replace hard-right Republican Attorney General Mark burnovich that's not yet been called. Mays leads Republican Abe Hamaday by about... Uh, Just 0.06 percent. That's less than one tenth of a percent easily within the automatic recount territory with almost all of the votes tallied there. If she wins, all of the major statewide offices, however, in Arizona would be held by Democrats next year. Though I should note that the race for Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction is currently being led by Republican Tom Horn over incumbent Democrat Kathy Hoffman by also a tiny amount, .32, so we're likely to see a recount there as well. But the Republican could actually pull that one off. But boy, how things have changed in Arizona. And very quickly, two more points here just for the moment before we move to our guest today. AP made another call in Arizona after we got off air last night. Prop 308 passed in the state, which means that Arizona high school graduates, including non-citizen residents in Arizona, will get in-state tuition rates at colleges and universities regardless of immigration status. Nice. So again, thank you, Carrie Lake, uh, progressive journalist uh, Dan Nishanian, otherwise known as Taniel on Twitter. He notes, "Quote: This is the second big referendum win for immigration rights. Massachusetts voters approved giving driver's licenses to undocumented residents last week." And he adds. Uh, Those results come on top of critical losses for immigration hardliners who have been running for sheriff's offices around the country. So in case you're wondering, it was not just a good night for Democrats and democracy, it was also a good night for progressives, really up and down the ballot. To that end, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with progressive journalist John Nichols of The Nation and talk about uh, the uh, 2022 midterms, get his take, uh, as we have uh, many times over the years turned to him for perspective and insight, particularly for progressives after major elections. John Nichols is next, and if time allows, (laughs) maybe. Desi Doyen's latest Green News report is also coming up. All of that is ahead on the broadcast. by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate and thanks welcome back it's the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com On election night, my guest joining me momentarily warned at the nation, quote, buckle up. This could be a month long election night. Indeed, we are now in week two of election night coverage here of the broadcast. And yes, this could continue for a while as we fight to ensure that every vote is counted and counted as cast. And of course, we don't even get to the runoff for U.S. Senate in Georgia until December 6th, so it could go on for a while. As we go to air today, while it looks like the Republicans are likely to regain control of the House of Representatives by the barest of majorities, that may or may not work out so well for the fractured GOP caucus and its presumptive, emphasis on presumptive, new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But it is arguably Among the only bright spots for the GOP following this year's midterm elections in a year that should have been the red wave or red tsunami that Republicans and their friendly helpers in the corporate media have been misreporting it as to the American electorate for months during the run up to the election. That despite lots of hard evidence that it would be anything but a red wave this year, as we, in fact, have been noting for months. But somehow... The corporate media had to work really hard to ignore all of that data that we were seeing, it seems, even if it meant advising readers at times to dismiss their very own polling, showing that Democrats were likely to outperform expectations, as Politico did on the eve of the midterm election. And yes, Democrats did outperform those low expectations. With Arizona's Secretary of State Katie Hobbs' apparent win in the state uh, of Arizona for governor, defeating former news anchor and Trump wannabe Carrie Lake, as called by the media on Monday night, Democrats ended up flipping three previously held Republican governorships from red to blue this year, while Republicans flipped just one Democratic governorship in favor of Republicans. Democrats also managed to flip several critical state legislative bodies from red to blue in critical battleground states like Michigan and Minnesota and maybe even Pennsylvania and New Hampshire. They held on to every single U.S. Senate seat that they defended this year, at least so far with that run up coming up in Georgia next month. And they uh, Democrats even flipped Pennsylvania's Republican U.S. Senate seat from red to blue to pick up a seat in the upper chamber that will be filled, of course, by Senator elect John Fetterman. Every single Republican secretary of state candidate who lied about the 2020 election results in every single battleground state in which they ran has now lost, according to the reported results Up and down the ballot from federal and statewide races to contests for district attorney, sheriff and judge, Democrats and yes, progressives defied the so-called conventional wisdom that we have been imploring you, begging you to ignore for the better part of the last year in these decidedly unconventional times. Now, Democrats, of course, didn't win all of them, but they won a lot of them as far as I can tell. And even with majority control of the House likely to go, if barely, to Republicans next year, Democrats managed to hold on to seats in the House as well that should have been easily flippable from blue to red in the first year midterm elections of a presidency with low approval ratings. Rather than the 30 or 50 or even 100 seats that folks like disgraced and criminally convicted former Trump advisor Steve Bannon declared that Republicans would win in the U.S. House this year in what he inaccurately described as a realignment of American politics from top to bottom, unlike any seen since 1932, as he repeatedly promised, Well, the GOP is more likely to find itself with anywhere from a one to three seat majority in the U.S. House and a Democratic majority now set for the U.S. Senate. But as close as the results in the House may now be, as we discussed with uh, redistricting, uh, redistricting expert David Daley on this show last week. Ultimately, there were, in fact, enough seats that were either gerrymandered by Republican controlled states or blocked by the courts when Democrats tried to do anything like it in order to prevent what almost certainly would have been a hold of the majority in the House by Democrats. And one of the weeks of negative, and I will add false assertions by the corporate media in lockstep with Republicans that Democrats were going to lose and lose big this year, even while evidence from guys like Tom Bonner of Target Smart, our guest on this program several times over the last several months, revealed that Democrats, specifically young Democrats, specifically young Democratic women, we're registering to vote and then voting early in unprecedented numbers following the corrupt U.S. Supreme Court stealing 50 years of well-established constitutional rights and freedoms from the American people when they overturned Roe v. Wade in their Dobbs decision. Might that terrible reporting on a bloodbath for Democrats that never came Might that have helped depress the electorate and help the GOP to win the narrowest of House majorities? And by the way, what are the House and Senate races where the Democratic Party campaign machine chose and or refused to help fund winnable races, including at least one in Wisconsin that my guest today recently argued would have been completely winnable? In the great state of Wisconsin, had the Democratic Party only helped that candidate out a little bit more or really at all? Following many elections over the past decade or two, we have turned to our friend and progressive journalist John Nichols. He's the national affairs correspondent for The Nation and associate editor of his local Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. He's also the author of many books on progressive politics, including his latest Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. After many of those elections over the years, we've we've had to sort of had to turn to John to help us make sense of grim results and what can be done to change them in the future. Today, for maybe a happy change, at least I think the results are not grim, or at least they are far better than they might otherwise have been or arguably should have been this year for both Democrats and progressive candidates. Oh, John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, sir, for a mostly, I think, not terribly grim discussion for a change.
3: Well, we've had a few positive ones over the years. Uh, you know. I don't remember days. any of
1: them. I only remember <laughs> the disasters, John.
3: <laughs> Always looking on the dark side. But yes. You have to understand that, that this is the third election cycle in a row mm-hmm. that Donald Trump has been the dominant figure—well, it's actually the fourth—but the third in a row where Donald Trump has been the dominant figure in the Republican Party, and Mm. the Republican Party has lost. Yep. And so, if you think of 2018 through 2020 and 2022,
1: it's kind of a pattern. Yeah, it kind of is. And is that—you know, as noted, I want to sort of drill down into some of the details, uh, but before we do, what is just your sort of your broad takeaway— one week after really an extraordinary midterm election night like no other that that I can remember in recent uh, history in any event.
3: Yeah, look, here's my broad take, uh, and it it parallels a lot of what you said uh, going in here. Uh, we if we'd been talking a week ago, uh, based on everything you've heard you'd heard from the punditry, mm-hmm. everything you'd heard from. Uh, and let's be very honest, from Democratic politicians, because I talked to a lot of them, sometimes on the record, sometimes off. And what I was hearing was, you know, despair,
2: mm-hmm. right? A
3: real sense that that things were overwhelming and awful, and it was really a triage operation. Let's try and save as many as we can because <laughs> right. it could be horrible, right? Um, and that was a week ago. That was a week ago. Today, right now. In fact, even into the evening, I remember I was doing uh, one show. And the the host came on and said, wow, this is a pretty dismal night for Democrats. And I said, well, you know, actually, it's not. Because Mm -hmm. we were even starting to see the pattern on Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here's my bottom line take. And that is that this is the best midterm election result for a newly elected Democratic president, Mm -hmm. uh, i.e. a Democratic president in their first term, since Franklin Roosevelt, in 1934 Mm. now it's not as good as roosevelt Mm -hmm. roosevelt actually substantially increased his majorities and um had you know some left-wing parties that were were aligning with him so i mean really everything was going great for roosevelt in 34 just about but you know with that said with that understood this is um you know still a a remarkable result and it goes against all sorts of patterns Mm -hmm. it it aside from the 1962 uh, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis election, where Kennedy also had some decent numbers, um, this is a, an outlier. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it an outlier? And I think the answer is that, uh, that our politics has changed, right? I mean, we, we're not in the same world that we were right, in before. Right. Local, local media doesn't exist the way it used to, mm-hmm. so na- elections are nationalized. We have seen the two parties go more to their, to their kind of corners. The the Democrats, at least somewhat to the left, the Republicans, way to the right. And so we have to adjust our, our filter. And if we do, um, what we're going to understand is that this election, Actually, tells us a lot about where potential Democratic majorities and coalitions are in
1: the future. Well, uh, to that end, what what does it tell us? Because yeah, that's what what you're describing is pretty much what we have been the case that we have been trying to make for the past year that these are not normal times that things have changed. You know, you don't turn to conventional wisdom in unconventional times. Now, prior to the election, of course, as as you note, the corporate media were you know saying, oh, it was all over for the Dems; they're going to lose. It was big right up to election day they should have uh, focused on the economy instead of abortion rights and democracy but that you know proved to be completely wrong that analysis what what should be the lessons then that democrats learn again in a broad sense from what happened in these midterms how does that how does one apply that moving forward
3: well one thing is you recognize that young people uh, ought to be where you're putting a lot of your resources.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and and remember, uh, young voters are a unique demographic because the, its its core changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, someone is a young voter for you know, 10, 12 years if you, right. if you mark it as under 30, and then they move out of that category mm-hmm. and somebody else moves in. So it's a little bit harder than, than some demographics to target and focus on. Uh, and what you have to do, understand is that as a party, Democrats need to be talking to young voters, understanding, you know, really having a grip on bringing young people into leadership positions in the party and listening to them in major ways. But if you do, the rewards are immense. Mm. And just to give you a a couple data points, uh, among voters over 65, Mm -hmm. you had a 13% bias toward the Republicans. Mm -hmm. Among voters over 45, 45 to 65, I believe, is the category, mm-hmm. uh, you had an 11-point bias toward the Republicans. So basically, you know, you get to middle age and beyond, mm-hmm. and the Republicans have, have got this thing locked up. Then if you go under 45, right, to 30 to 45 in that range, then you got a two-point bias toward the Democrats. Mm-hmm. That's pro-Democrat, but it's not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And then you go under 30, and especially under 25, and suddenly the bias is 28% in favor of the Democrats. It's a jaw-dropping number. And the thing to understand is that one of the things that happened was that at the very end of the 2022 cycle in states across the country, you had a lot of young voters Mm -hmm. uh, lining up and casting votes. I saw it in my own city of Madison, Wisconsin, where there were lines out the polling place and around the corner.
1: I saw it uh, reported, I think, by John del Volpe that uh, the young voters uh, essentially canceled every single vote that was cast by someone who was sixty five and older because they turned out this time.
3: because they're a large demographic. Yeah. there's a lot of people there. They don't turn out at the same percentage mm-hmm. the same level that right. older voters do. right. Obviously, but they but if they turn out strong, it has a huge impact. And then you ask yourself this fundamental question. What if you put the resources into young people? Remember, instead of all these TV ads, which are mainly all aimed at older voters, mm-hmm. what if you really did work social media, work all the other avenues, mm. and have a, a massive, ongoing, year-to-year mobilization strategy, and you got that youth vote up to something parallel yep. to the vote of people over 65? Yeah we would be a different
1: country. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Let's talk about uh, some things that didn't go quite as well. When we uh, spoke last week, I think it was, with uh, Tom Bonier of uh, Target Smart's uh, data analyst, Uh, he sort of lamented about uh, close races in several states that might have been won by Democrats, but for the misleading mis- misreporting about you know a so-called red wave and and the clearly false notion that Democrats were just you know doing everything totally wrong in the wrong way uh, by focusing on abortion and democracy instead of economy and inflation uh, as the GOP framed it and the media helpfully parroted. But Tom cited. Uh, you know he, he he lamented some of the uh, the, the uh, effect that that may have had on the electorate by depressing the electorate he uh, focused on the US Senate race in your home state of Wisconsin where insurrection enthusiast and uh, Dishonest Trumper Senator Ron Johnson appears to have defeated Democratic lieutenant governor and, in my opinion, excellent Senate candidate Mandela Barnes, who had been leading Johnson in the polls for much of the year until the past month or so. What happened in that race? How and why was it lost in Wisconsin?
3: Okay, so you you put a lot on the table there, and it's kind of two separate tracks both super important i want to make sure we address them both mm-hmm. and and so before we come into the wisconsin thing let me let me just you know come off that very very good point you're making about the impact of this expectation game
2: mm-hmm. right
3: because the impact of this expectation game which by the way was fed also by the Repo- by republican pollsters releasing a whole bunch of polls right that were way off the mark you know mm-hmm. but suggested that races were closer that even republicans were you know, moving beyond and ahead of, of incumbent Democrats.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: What that all created was a situation where uh, the people who have power in the Democratic Party, and that is uh, older incumbents, particularly older incumbents in the Senate, mm-hmm. got really, really scared. They got scared about their own races, <laughs> and they started to say, "Give me all the money." <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, and and that's I I'm not gonna. Kick on him for that. I understand you're you're you know you're trying to hold on to your seat, mm-hmm. blah blah. You're fearful that you're going to lose it. You're seeing all this evidence that suggests you are, and so a huge amount of money flowed into races mm. where Democrats were going to win, mm. right? Mm-hmm. They, they were clearly going to win, mm-hmm. and then you had situations in some races where at critical moments Democrats didn't have the money they needed mm. to compete. You know, just at critical moments. Now, that's not to say Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, as an example, didn't have a lot of money. He had tens of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. there's no question. And at the close, he, he had parity, or it looked like parity, and was able to really you know, close that gap and virtually win. He came within 26,000 votes of winning. Mm-hmm. But in September and early October in Wisconsin, he used one example of a, a candidate who you know kind of fell short. In September and early uh, October in Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes was getting outspent by millions and millions of dollars. He had just come out of a primary where he had been outspent as well. Mm-hmm. He was raising money, but he didn't have a lot there. And as a result, Ron Johnson was able to you know, pretty much own the airwaves mm-hmm. week after week mm-hmm. with racist and xenophobic ads that were, you know, literally referred to the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes, as dangerous and different. Right. You know, I mean, it was it was an over-the-top campaign, but it wasn't answered effectively. Mm. And so, as a result, Mandela Barnes ended up six points down in the polls coming into, you know, into mid-October. Right. That the, the attacks had done a lot of damage, and he made up a lot of that ground, almost all of it, but not quite enough. Mm. If Mandela Barnes had had the resources... Early in earlier in the campaign, and frankly, let's then move you know from the the micro to the macro, mm-hmm. uh, and say around the country, I can point to a dozen races, more races, where if the Democratic Party had been you know thinking on a let's let's be expansive, let's let's go for bigger wins, mm-hmm. let's let's actually try to prevail in this cycle and move money in that that sort of offensive rather than defensive mode, mm-hmm. um, they would have won. And so uh, what I can tell you is, this: to my view, this is, it isn't just about money. It's about strategy for when you spend money. But the end result is, I think there's very little question that, that Mandela Barnes could have won if the resources had been there at the right time earlier on. I think Jerry Busey in uh, North Carolina mm. very possibly could have won yeah. as well. Yeah. So then you'd be talking about Democrats moving up to, instead of 51 seats, potentially 53,
2: right. which would be an
3: incredible. And then when we go into the House races... Brad, they literally pulled money out of rural districts uh, in Wisconsin, Texas, Oregon, where they, you know, you know what the D.C. Democrats say. They say, oh, we can't possibly hold our own in small town, you know, small city districts. You know, we're in trouble everywhere. So we'll pull the money out of there. Well, you've got candidates like Brad Papp in western Wisconsin. He got more than 48 percent of the vote without the national money. If he had it, he would have won.
1: Yeah, I you know and and you sort of raise a, an interesting point because I was originally asking, you know, what what effect all of that and and you know, you reference the Republicans sort of figuring out how to game the polling averages, uh, you know, mm-hmm. by releasing all of these uh, Republican polls at the last second, and that uh, depresses the—can depress the vote. I was sort of talking about, you know, yeah, know where yeah. voters depressed— I realize I took it
3: a little bit.
1: No, no, no. Variety, I'm, but... I'm glad you did, John, because it sort of raises the point not only— uh arguably can depress the vote itself but in this case it was depressing the strategy that was being run by Democrats oh no we're going to get killed we better pull back our resources and 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 firm up our uh you know the seats that we want to hold etc it seems like it had an effect up and down the board cuz one of the questions that i've had john is you know it is conventional wisdom I- I- at least in recent years that uh and we often like to question conventional wisdom, but the idea that polling numbers serve to depress the vote itself of the party on the losing end of those polls. And I've always, you know, when it's my candidate who is Said to be losing in those polls, I want to work harder to help them get elected. Is the conventional wisdom right? At least when it comes to voters, do bad polls actually depress the vote? Uh, You know, do Americans feel like they get a prize if they pick the right person or something who's going to win the election? Uh, Or does it actually, counter to conventional wisdom, make people work harder to try to win?
3: Well, it depends on what the stakes are. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you if it's a race between uh, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford in 1976 for president
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know a bad poll probably doesn't do a whole lot right because on balance Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford were not frightening people
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know what I mean okay. you could you be a Democrat you want Carter to win you'd be a Republican you want Ford to win mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is they were both you know relatively in the the somewhat moderate mainstreams of their party mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, that's not the politics we have anymore uh, Gerald Ford couldn't even get into a Republican primary. <laughs> right. Ronald Reagan couldn't get into a Republican primary. Right. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan, who supported gay rights and done other things, he would have been he, he would have been disqualified. The Bushes would have been knocked out. Of course, they already have been. You know, and so we've ended up. We're now in a situation where the Republican Party has become exceptionally extreme. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, rational people talk about it as an authoritarian, neo-fascist, even fascist party. Now, you can debate those terms, but the fact of the matter is, you know, that's the level of concern about what you're looking at with the Republican Party. So now, in a situation like that, when you put a poll out that shows that the Republicans might take, you know, full power mm-hmm. and in the, at the congressional level, that they might sweep the states, is that going to make particularly young voters and, and disenfranchised voters say, oh, I better give up? Or is it going to make them say, wow, yeah. this midterm election is a lot more important than I thought it was? Right. I'm going to come vote, uh, and yeah. and so I think it can actually have that impact, and and so you know we've got all these factors in play. Yeah. But I I do think that the polling in some cases did cause a fear factor that may have helped the Democrats a little bit. Um. By the same token, it also did, as I said before, influence some of that strategizing. Mm-hmm. And I think in that case, the Democrats, um, you know, they paid consultants a lot of money. Yeah you would think consultants could figure a few of these
1: things out <laughs> you, if I, well that's what's dr- driving me mad is that I was able to figure this out for months and months and I, I just could not understand all of this reporting oh it's going to be a red wave, the Democrats are in trouble, And but you know there was data there was information, you could look you could see that obviously was not the case and if that reporting helped to motivate some voters out of fear, great, but it does seem to have done the job in you know scaring the Democratic Party itself to pull resources from where they should have been uh, to where, you know, they weren't needed. You mentioned uh, Wisconsin uh, Democrat Brad Pfaff, uh, who got no money at all from the uh, essentially from the Democratic Party Uh, we also heard similar laments from uh, Senate candidate Tim Ryan in Ohio who never mind what I think of his politics I thought he ran an excellent campaign against he ran a brilliant campaign for Ohio in
3: 2022
1: Uh, yeah uh, yeah, and yet he received zero help from Democrats I I, you know I don't understand that and I guess it's those damn consultants uh, you you reference that cannot seem to either figure out what's actually going on on the ground until two or four years later, when by then everything has already moved on to the, to the next uh, scammy Republican idea that they're trying to catch up with.
3: There's a little bit of that. And, and I think, you know, look, here's one of the subtleties of it, too. And this kind of, this is a, you know, if we're going to keep, you know, kind of going down this rabbit hole <laughs> and exploring it at, at every level that we can and should, let's also understand, is some of the red wave talks probably hurt the republicans a little in their strategizing as well mm. because they began to imagine that they could win races that they couldn't win ah. right and they got really excited at the end about new hampshire right and they got wiped out they
1: got <laughs> you know, the, they, you know, they got high on their free. own supply as well and then they spent yeah. money in races that they could not win john i've got just a, a minute or two here there's a few more points i want to hit Uh, You have, of course, been a longtime champion of progressive candidates, not Democratic candidates necessarily, but progressive candidates across the country. So setting aside the Democrats for a moment, how did progressives do last week? Because it seems to me, at least from here, that they won up and down the ballot unless I'm uh, missing something. And what does that tell us or what should that tell the Democratic Party about progressivism? itself in campaigning moving forward, if anything?
3: No, you're not missing anything, Brad. Look, uh, the fact of the matter is that our media, which has become so nationalized and also, um, you know, so kind of pundit poll driven, uh, it misses the reality, the big picture, right? And the big picture is, um, you know, what is the Republican caucus going to be going forward? They're going to maybe have control of the House, but by a very narrow margin. Uh, And what is the Democratic caucus going to be? Well, the reality is the Democratic caucus is going to be, in the House of Representatives, as an example, more progressive. And uh, why is it going to be more progressive? Because you're bringing in people who won, in some cases, tough primaries, mm-hmm. but who are you know really ready to stand strong. You're getting Summer Lee out of Pennsylvania, a remarkable mm-hmm. figure who had to beat AIPAC twice in mm-hmm. in the primaries, in mm-hmm. primary and general election. You're getting Maxwell Frost out of uh, Florida, who's the you know, first Gen Zer coming mm-hmm. in. Uh, um, and very progressive. Uh, Greg Casar out of uh, Austin, Texas, who's one of the best organizers in the country, now coming to Congress. It's a, it already there's, I talked to members of Congress and, and senators, people like Bernie Sanders, who are super excited by, you know, what, what Greg is going to bring to Congress. Out of Chicago, you've got, uh, Jonathan Jackson, Jesse Jackson's son, as well as Delia Ramirez, uh, who is just an incredibly smart grassroots activist, both coming to Congress. And I can run down the, yeah you know, we could keep going. And these are all people that are going to join the Progressive Caucus, yeah. um, in some cases join the squad. Mm-hmm. They are, they're, you know, major, smart, good, effective players, <laughs> many of them with legislative or city council experience. So they're not just coming in fresh out of nowhere. They are. They know how to do this. And then if I can just add one other quick thing. Sure. Look at that. Look at the gubernatorial races around the country. You know, Gretchen Whitmer and uh, Tony Evers and Josh Shapiro in the key, you know, Great Lake swing states of uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, they didn't run as boring centrists. No. They ran pro-choice, yep. pro-union, mm-hmm. uh, defenders of democracy. I mean, they, they they won for what we would traditionally have called a pretty progressive position. And then in Pennsylvania... Also, mm-hmm. I mean, take a look at who got elected to the United States Senate. <laughs> yes.
1: I, you know, and I, I think we've uh, may have discussed it a number of times over the past year or two, John Nichols, but uh, how Joe Biden himself has turned out to be a very progressive President And yes, pro-union president, at least as far as uh, I can tell. I, I found myself having to sort of make that case to at least some progressives, uh, nonetheless, in the run up to the election. So uh, I guess two part question. A, am I right about that as you see it? And B, if so... Why Democrats have such a difficult time getting that message out to yes progressives that they really have uh, moved towards progressivism in recent years?
3: Yeah, know it's, it's sort of it's, it's kind of reminding people that you're winning, <laughs>
1: you yeah, know? yeah, and, yeah. And
3: that, that you actually are succeeding, you are influencing the party uh, in such a direction that now the Republicans feel like they have to call all Democrats socialists,
1: right? Exactly, um, communists, and, communists, you know, communists, John.
3: Uh, I know they were really they were throwing it all out, yeah, and and. And, in fact, I was out in places where they had, you know, billboards on it, like in Kansas, and mm-hmm. the Democratic governor got reelected. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and so did Sharice uh, David in her congressional race out in Kansas. So here's the, here's the bottom line uh, on, on Joe Biden. Joe Biden's record was as a center, centrist mm-hmm. Democrat. Yep. There's no question that. 36 yep. years in the Senate, eight years as vice president. And, and you know, on a lot of that he was pretty centrist but his roots were in a a labor democratic tradition and um and as he has evolved uh Mm -hmm. you know that that labor democratic tradition has kept him solid in a place where the democratic party got very very weak in the period of neoliberalism particularly during the clinton years and beyond that the democratic party got very very soft on standing up for working people biden's better better on that issue he's not perfect but Mm -hmm. he he gets it better yep and Uh, With the rise of Bernie Sanders, I think there was an influence there. And then I think also, you know, Biden, he certainly has evolved on a lot of issues and he's very solid on choice. He's Mm -hmm. very solid on, you know, better on climate change than than, you know, Mm -hmm. I think we've than any president so far in our history. Yeah. Um, And so this isn't I'm not going to tell you that Joe Biden is the perfect progressive. Right. He's not. Right. He was the choice of the establishment. To prevent a progressive
2: mm-hmm. from being the nominee, but mm-hmm. so you
3: have to understand that and put mm-hmm. it in perspective. But he's a very good politician, mm. and so what he recognized was that the action was on his left flank, not on his right flank. Right. And so when he came to the presidency, he invited Bernie Sanders over to the White House, yep. and, and you know treated him seriously and worked with him on a on a host of issues. And I think that has strengthened Biden and made Biden, you know, again a more progressive president than we would have expected. And the fact of the matter is, let's be very, very clear, despite what pundits try to, the games they try to play, Americans had a very clear choice. In 2022, they had a choice between an extreme right-wing Republican Party, strained toward authoritarianism on many issues, and a Democratic Party that was edging toward progressivism, Mm -hmm. right? And and that was attacked for that. Mm -hmm. And what did the American people decide to do? In a surprise to everyone, to the politicians and the pundits, they decided to go for the party that's edging toward progressivism.
1: Yep, they did. And, and you know, the president, again, I don't care what he actually is. I care about the way that he governs. And if, yep. if it's smart politics to move to the left and he moves to the left... I'll take it. And, you know, I I just hope that uh, voters, uh, especially a lot of our progressive friends, bother to notice because if they think a a, a Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or anyone else like that is going to, you know, even open the door to their uh, uh, concerns. I'm not sure what they're smoking. Anyway, John, uh, I had hoped to talk to you about uh, the mess on the Republican side. That's going to have to wait to another day. Uh, But always great speaking with you, my friend, particularly when we got something good to talk about for change. John Nichols is the uh, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Uh, He Well, he writes everywhere. Also at Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. But you can find his work at The Nation at thenation.com. And on the Twitters, while they're still around, you'll find him at Nichols Uprising. And yes, it's the holidays, so be sure to buy one of his books. His latest is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. John Nichols, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for joining us once again today, sir.
3: Thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to you.
1: Always great speaking with John Nichols oh, yeah. after an election
0: Yeah, definitely He does, definitely puts things into perspective right? Under 25 voters really do live in a different world Than the rest of us mm. were raised mm-hmm. on And our world as in politics has changed so much Just in the last 10 years
1: Well, maybe you, Desi Doyen But you're old <laughs> Me, I'm right there with the kids <laughs> Daddy-o All right, quick break And we are back Are you ready for the Green News Report, Des? I am All right, that's right ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman You know, it's been a pretty good week, Desi Doyen. Okay. Are you going to ruin everything with the (laughs) Green News Report?
0: Well, you know, I have a tendency to do that.
1: Yeah, you do, don't you? Anyway, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. We're racing forward to do our part to avert the climate hell that the U.N. Secretary General so passionately warned about earlier this week.
0: President Biden pledges U.S. leadership and funding at U.N. Climate Summit. U.S. and China resume formal climate negotiations, plus... That result means Democrats would once again control the Senate. Democrats hold on to thin Senate majority holding line on U.S. climate policy.
1: All of those thin majorities and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
0: And I'm Desi Doyan.
1: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And let me tell you this evening. If we were ready for the green agenda, I'll raise my hand right now, but we're not ready right now. We're not prepared. We're not ready right now. What we need to do is keep having those gas guzzling cars. Ladies and gentlemen, Georgia's Republican U.S. Senate candidate, Herschel Walker. This is your Green News Report. I'm
2: gonna...
1: Okay, Desi Dorian, the election that continues to continue <laughs> uh, continues to inform our outlook on the climate. But first, we're stuck dealing with what happened in Florida.
0: Yes, we are. Hurricane Nicole caused an estimated 5 to $7 billion in damages after it slammed into Florida last week as a rare November hurricane, destroying roads, bridges, and dozens of beachfront buildings. That's according to AccuWeather. So
1: another billion-dollar-plus storm as these things continue to pile up in recent years.
0: Yes, they do. In other news, as we go to air, Democrats have retained their razor-thin majority in the U.S. Senate, but control of the U.S. House is likely to narrowly go to Republicans. Congress matters because it will determine where and how quickly funding is deployed for climate and clean energy projects under President Biden's landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act, and whether the U.S. will follow through on funding commitments to help developing nations adapt to the climate crisis. President Biden spoke at the United Nations Climate Summit, COP27, in Egypt on Friday, announcing that thanks to Democrats passing the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. is now on track to meet its pledge under the Paris Climate Agreement to cut its emissions 43 percent by 2030. Biden apologized for the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement during the Trump administration. Good. He should. And he urged major emitters that are responsible for man-made global warming, like the U.S., to move faster to cut greenhouse gas emissions to prevent overshooting 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming to avoid catastrophic impacts.
1: If we're going to win this fight, every major emitter nation needs to align with the 1.5 degrees We can no longer plead ignorance
2: to the consequences of our actions or continue to repeat our mistakes. Everyone has to keep accelerating efforts throughout this decisive decade.
1: Yes, we do. Of course, beginning with us. But hopefully what we're doing and that 400 billion dollars we've allocated under the new bill is that Uh, encouraging the rest of the world to do the same?
0: It does seem to be helping. COP27 this year is focused on international climate finance under the Paris Agreement that is getting rich nations that are primarily responsible for the crisis to boost funding to help poorer countries adapt to climate impacts and avoid becoming dependent on fossil fuels. After decades of resistance, there is some progress. Denmark pledged half a billion dollars to finance adaptation in Namibia. Europe, the U.S., and Japan announced $20 billion to help Indonesia ditch coal. Overall, the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Australia are laggards on climate finance. Mm -hmm. Biden pledged that the U.S. will quadruple funding to help other nations fight climate change, increasing U.S. contributions to a climate resilience fund to $100 million, plus $150 million in new funding for adaptation and resilience projects in Africa. However... Congress must approve any new U.S. funding.
1: Exactly. The new Congress can stop all of that. Plus, President DeSantis can just call it all off.
0: The U.S. also proposed launching an international carbon credit trading system, which would allow corporations to pay someone else to cut emissions. That would raise revenue for developing nations, but it was criticized as a way for rich countries to avoid taking responsibility for causing the climate crisis. And it matters because a new analysis from the global carbon budget concludes that at current emissions rates, nations will likely burn through their remaining carbon budget in nine years, causing the world to blow past that critical 1.5 degrees Celsius target under the Paris Agreement. Finally, some good news. Thank you. Biden's diplomacy blitz appears to be working. On Monday at the G20 meeting, the White House announced that the U.S. and China, the world's two biggest greenhouse gas emitters, will resume formal climate negotiations, which experts called a significant development, opening up a pathway for greater emissions cuts.
1: So the U.S. and China are talking again. Yes. About climate. There's that. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report.
0: Come together right now over me.
1: Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Imagine that, China and U.S. coming together to have talks. I was told by the Kremlin that, uh, you know, the uh, U.S. and China were going to war, to war (laughs) tomorrow.
0: Yeah, don't ever listen to those disinformers.
1: (sighs) I try not to. Anyway, thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to my guest today, John Nichols of The Nation, and of course to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is Greatly appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That's made possible by those of you who are generous enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate or just hit one of them donate buttons. There's lots of them at bradblog.com to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I've got a lot of uh, email. I was hoping to get to some. Maybe we will uh, as the week progresses uh, from folks. Uh, saying they have been enjoying our election coverage. Oh, good. So there's that at least. Yay! Uh, Thanks for those kind notes. Maybe we'll get to some of them in the days ahead. Anyway, I am Bradcast at bradblog.com You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters, as long as Twitter still exists. (laughs) I am the Bradblog. We'll see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
0: Lookin' cause he's so hard to see. Come together, right now, over me.